Hey everybody and welcome to the Young Adults Today podcast where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. Here are your hosts, Josiah and Micah Keneally. Well, good morning, everybody. This is the Young Adults Today podcast where we talk about young adults in our world today. So we hope that you are doing well. We hope that your Monday is kicking off strong. I'm Micah Keneally. I'm Josiah Keneally, and we have the joy of journeying with you as your hosts of this, the Young Adults Today podcast. And listen, hey, every Monday, we want to help you start your week and your leadership off strong. We Mm -hmm. drop new episodes. We are um, just past 275 episodes. Can you believe it? No, that sounds like a lot. (laughs) And it's been such a fun journey. We, of course, consider it a gift when you subscribe, share this episode with friends, um, leaders, pastors, parents, Mm -hmm. people who are passionate about the faith of the next generation. We are fanatical about seeing young adults in our world today reach Mm -hmm. for Christ. And um, if you would leave us a, a... review mm-hmm. and honest opinion of how the podcast is going. We're joined today by a returning guest. I'm thrilled to welcome back Dr. George Barna. How are you? Well, it's good to be back with you. I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, and last since last time, um, picking up right where we left off, how is the baseball card collection going? <laughs> uh, still memorizing numbers. That's all I'm going to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you can ask Micah if this is true or not, but I'll have some cards that I'm going to look to send your way because I'll still remember what you what you said about your brother um, making a collage out of your cards and we're going to, God is in the business of redeeming things and he makes all things new. We're going to send some cards your way. Yeah. Share that hobby with you. That's very kind. Thank you. I love it. <laughs> but Dr. George Barna, our guest on the Young Adults Today podcast mm-hmm. is with us for a second time. If you have not, um, listened or watched our last conversation. We talked about everything you need to know about mm-hmm. the next generation, Gen Z. And today we're going to be diving in with Dr. Barna, America's foremost faith and culture researcher and New York Times bestselling author of Catch This, more than 60 books. This time he's mm-hmm. back with a message of raising spiritual champions. And come on, you- we need that. Right. <laughs> what the time is now, such a time as this. And Mike and I, if you listen to this podcast, you know that we have two young kids of our own, mm-hmm. Aurora and Avalon. I'm a girl dad. Mm-hmm. And um, parenting is very important to us. We believe in the faith of the next generation. And for us, we need to look no further than our own home, our own church, our own neighborhood, our own community. And we're going to dive into seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview. But before we do, Dr. Barna, can you just break down what in the world is a biblical worldview? Sure. Uh, and, and I'll take even a step before that, which is what is a worldview? And the reality is a worldview is something that everybody has. You need it to get through the day. It's essentially the intellectual, moral, spiritual, and emotional filter that every one of us uses as we make every decision that we ever make. We receive information and inputs and opportunities, and we put it through that filter to determine what choice we want to make in response to that opportunity or condition. So we begin developing our worldview at a very young age, between 15 to 18 months of age, and the age of 13 is when you develop uh, during your teens. 
change in your 20s, you'll refine it. You'll figure out how to better articulate it. You may change a few things here or there, but essentially by the age of 13, you've answered the big questions in life, which is what your worldview answers. Who am I? Why am I here? Is there a, a something bigger than me that has influence on me and others in the world? You know, what is success? Uh, how do I want to live? What kind of imprint do I want to leave on the world? All the big questions of life are essentially what determines your worldview. And your worldview is not just a set of beliefs. Keep in mind that you do what you believe. And so therefore, those worldview beliefs also determine your lifestyle. Again, the choices that you're going to make from moment to moment to moment. As you've said, look, if I'm going to make choices, I think the best choices I can make will be those that are in harmony with what God has told us to do. Mm -hmm. And so it's an issue of trying to figure out what are the core principles that God has given to us in order to lead a life that honors and glorifies him. And according to him, a life that will enable us to thrive because that's what he wants us to do. That's why he gave us those principles. And so when we follow those, we lead our best life. So a biblical worldview is the uh, attempt to be consistently uh, knowing and following God's principles for life. I think that's so good. And that's essential in this day and age of not only knowing how to do that, but applying that. Because I think so many times our head knowledge and heart knowledge aren't always connecting. We're like 18 inch inches away of breakthrough, of lifestyle change, of a different future that's bigger and brighter than what we could ever think, dream, ask, or imagine. And I would just would love for you to take it one step deeper, um, Dr. Barner, for the person who's really wrestling with this worldview thing of topic. Um, what are the seven cornerstones of the biblical worldview that we should just be informed about, know, and maybe apply in the process? Yeah, that, that's an important thing. And it came out of the research that I've been doing for the last number of years on worldview, one of the things I'm always asked by parents in particular is, I know I can't give my kids what I don't have. I don't think I have a biblical worldview. And yet I hear you and others talk about how important that is. What can I do? And so I've been spending a lot of time working through the research, trying to figure out, yeah, how does a parent do that? And, and so I happened on to these seven beliefs that when taken together, and carried out as a lifestyle, they are a great foundation on which to build a whole biblical worldview. And so those seven beliefs actually are very simple, but they're very powerful. What I discovered is if you believe and you pursue all seven of these beliefs, you have an 83% probability of actually developing a, a more complete biblical worldview. If you don't embrace and pursue all seven of these very basic cornerstones, you've only got a 2% probability of going on to develop a biblical worldview. So that's why I encourage all parents, Christian and otherwise, look, if you want to do right by your kids, you want to do right by God, you want to do right by yourself as a parent, and you want to do right by yourself as an individual trying to live a meaningful, successful, impactful life, here's a great place to start. So the seven very simply are, number one, not only believing that there is a God that exists, 
but understanding that he is the all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, uh, perfect, and just creator of the universe who created you as well, and he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to be involved in your life. You can invite him to be part of that, or you can close him out. That's your choice. But your best option is going to be to say, whoa, there is such a God. Mm -hmm. I want him to be part of my life. He created me for a purpose. I need to be part of, uh, of his life as well. So that's number one, knowing that God, knowing that he exists, inviting him to, to participate in your life. Second key principle or cornerstone is to recognize that when we were born, we were born into sin. That's part of our inheritance from Adam and Eve and, and all of our predecessors. We don't have to like it. We just have to understand that that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing that sin, that sin that we're born into has dramatic consequences for our life. And the third cornerstone then is to recognize that not only are we sinners, but there is an antidote to that condition, that sinful condition. And that antidote is Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to earth, the son of God, to die for your sins. And that if you're willing to acknowledge that you're a sinner and to confess those sins, to ask Jesus Christ to forgive you for those sins and to repent for them. And that's a critical part here, which means that you're saying, I recognize the, the problem that they create for me. And so I'm going to do everything in my power, and I'm asking God to give me more power to resist all those temptations to continue sinning. That's what repentance is. It's not just saying, yeah, I sinned, forgive me, and then going on and sinning, which so many people in America do, kind of a cheap grace solution. That doesn't work. What we want here is to recognize, yes, I've got to repent. And when I do that, Jesus sends me the Holy Spirit to give me the power to resist those things. And then the fourth of the seven cornerstones is to recognize that there is absolute moral truth. And so when I'm trying to figure out what's a sin, it doesn't depend on my situation, my conditions, my feelings, my culture. Mm -hmm. it, it, there are absolute morals. And the fifth thing is to identify where those absolute moral truths come from, and that's the Bible that the Bible is God's true, yes. relevant, reliable word for my life. Hmm. He gave it to humanity specifically because he knew we'd be questioning everything. And without that kind of absolute moral truth in writing given to us by our creator, we'd be questioning everything. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's why we can turn to the scriptures. And then sixthly, recognizing, therefore, we can know what a successful life is. And it's not about being the most popular. It's not about having the most money, the most possessions, uh, the most extensive education, you know, being famous, none of that. It's simply about being consistently obedient to the principles for life that God taught us. When we commit ourselves to that and we practice that, that's when we're successful. You can be a homeless person living in a tent on the street, living in rags with no food for tomorrow. And yet, if you're following God's commands, if you love him with all your heart, 
you know, you can still be a successful person. Mm-hmm. And the final thing does go to, well, what is your purpose in life? We've all got a purpose. There's a there's an individual purpose and there's a, a universal kind of purpose that God gives to each of us or all of us. And that is to know and love and serve God with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul. And so when we pursue that purpose, that's what leads us to that point of being successful if we're consistently obedient to those absolute moral truths that are taught in the scriptures, which we need to understand because it reminds us that we're sinners, that Jesus is the antidote, that God is in charge. We live for his purposes. You can see how all these things fit together which is kind of the beauty of what the Holy Spirit's done. I didn't make that up. God brought that, you know, to my attention through the data because it's his truth. And so the more that we build on those seven cornerstones, the deeper and the cleaner our biblical worldview is going to be. Let's go. That (laughs) fires me up, Dr. Barna. I have been hearing um, things that, really are, I described in our last conversation with you, they are sometimes like a pebble in my shoe. When I learned that two thirds of young adults walk away from the faith that they grew up in by the time they reach college. And we've devoted our life work to this mm-hmm. call in, in letting our generation and wants to come know about the goodness of God in the land of the living. And even more recently, we've heard a lot of the research where 96% of Gen Z is missing this biblical worldview that you've described. And I've been just a little bit at my wits end of just like, what can we do to increase that? What can we do to pass on the faith in Jesus to the next generation? Like Psalm 145, four commands and instructs us. And here is seven things that pastors can really focus on passing to the next generation. Here's things that as parents Mm -hmm. and as Christ followers, we can pass to the next generation in our home, these seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview. And I'm really passionate about that. I'm really fired up about that. I think that so many people are drowning in information and they're starving for truth. And here we have a God who outlines what love is and what our purpose is and what his commands Mm -hmm. are and what a successful life that you just described looks like. And um, I'm curious, you know, even to go off script here for a second, you're wearing a uh, New York Yankees polo. I'm a giant Minnesota twins fan. (laughs) And, um, you know, I think that sometimes my fondest memories, I look back and maybe you can relate. It was going to twins games with my dad. There was this father, son, we played catch every day. Um, and I just love and honor my dad. I remember on the faith side of his journey, he left early every morning and his Bible was often open to always open, but maybe Psalms or Proverbs or Isaiah and just reading the Bible. And so that got passed down to me as well. But that Mm -hmm. faith um, became my own in Jesus. And similarly, I'm a Twins fan and our girls now cheer for the the good guys. Um, (laughs) But this season, season, we're coming to get you next season. (laughs) It was one game at a time over here. (laughs) That's right. Go for it. When I serious with Dr. Barnard, like talk about what, is is biblical worldview is it inherited is it like you know passed along from generation to generation is it people any mm. thoughts on how even being baseball fans might correlate with worldview 
Yeah, you know, and and Josiah wrote this book, Raising Spiritual Champions, specifically to address those kind of issues. So it not only talks about seven cornerstones, but it talks about how developing a biblical worldview is a critical part of becoming a disciple of Jesus. And, of course, Jesus told us, look, your task, human being, on earth is to make disciples of all people. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, if you look at a passage like Deuteronomy 6, we're reminded that, and the first people that you're going to be responsible for in terms of discipleship are your children. So make sure that you focus on that. But how do you do that? One of the things that I write about in this book is what we found are the most effective parent discipleship activities that you can engage in. Wow. And there are a number of different aspects that I talk about. You know, one of those is that a child doesn't become a disciple of Jesus by accident. It's not a default mode. It's not an inheritance. It has to be very intentional and strategic. And so how do you go about that? As the parent, first thing you've got to do is have in your mind the identity of I am my parent, uh, my child's discipler. My job is to bring them into that lifelong, life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not the church's job. It's not the culture's job. It's not the media's job. It's my job as their parent. Now, how do I go about doing that? Well, number one, I've got to have that identity of I'm the disciple maker. Number two, I've got to have a plan because it doesn't happen spontaneously. Again, it doesn't happen haphazardly. So I've got to be thinking about what beliefs and behaviors do I want my children to embrace? How are they going to get those? And so, yeah, you identify the beliefs. You might start with the seven cornerstones. Uh, You look at what behaviors emanate from or, or come from those particular beliefs. And it's imperative that you model those for your children. One of the things I talk about in the book is that our research showed that most children in America today don't trust their parents. Now, why is that? As we did the research, what we discovered is the children are saying, you know what? Well, they didn't say this, but I mean, we kind of got in their head and heart to figure it out. And it was like, they're trying to figure out how life works. They're trying to figure out where they fit in the grand scheme of things. In other words, they're trying to develop their worldview. So they're looking for clues every day about who am I? Where do I go? How do I live? What's what's going to work? What's not going to work? What do I want to retain? How do I want to leave an imprint? All these questions. And so what do they do? They listen and they watch. Who do they listen and watch? Their parents, first and foremost. Why don't they trust their parents? Because what we found from the kids as they say, you know, I've been watching my parents and listening to them and they say one thing and they do another. And so to a child who's in the midst of this discovery phase of trying to figure out how does life work? How do I fit within it? How do I move forward most appropriately? Their conclusion from seeing the disjoint between uh, word and action among their parents is to say, oh my gosh, I guess my parents are as confused as I am. So I guess they don't have the answers. I'm going to have to look elsewhere for the answers. And that is why we also discovered that the arts and entertainment media 
have the greatest impact on the worldview development of our children. And you say, well, how can that be? They're not worldview developers. They absolutely are. Every movie, every television show, every streamed video, every popular song, every book, every video game, take, pick a media of your choice. They're sending worldview messages. Now, they may or may not be doing it intentionally, but we also in the book talk about content analysis. We actually looked at the most popular children's media in America today. We dissected the messages that they're sending and explained to parents, here's what programs on Disney are sending. Here's what programs on uh, Nickelodeon are sending. Here's what programs on some of the most popular uh video podcasts or something, you know, we looked at all these different places where kids are spending time every day. And what we discovered is that the biblical worldview is almost nowhere to be found. What's being professed to them are things like secular humanism, postmodernism, Marxism, Eastern mysticism, and on and on and on. The biblical worldview has been pushed to the side in favor of these other points of view. And so it's imperative that as parents you get your act together. You think about, if I'm asking my kids to do something, am I showing them what that looks like, that modeling? Great example that we found all the time. Kids would say, my parents tell me not to watch R-rated movies, but when I get up late at night, I find them watching R-rated movies. So why is it okay for them and not for me? They don't get that. They probably shouldn't get that. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that we've got to be so careful about. So, you know, you got to remember, you are the primary coach for your child developing a biblical worldview, which is the foundation of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why? Because being a disciple of Jesus means that I'm trying to imitate him in thought, word, and deed 24-7. And you cannot live like Jesus unless you think like Jesus. Why? Because you do what you believe. And so if you believe the same thing Jesus believed, that will lead you to the same courses of action that Jesus undertook. And that enables you to be in the imitation of Jesus, which facilitates your being a disciple. So that's that's something for parents to think about, you know, have the right identity. I'm not just a parent trying to help my kids survive. I'm their chief discipler. And as I do that, I've got to pay attention to their beliefs their behaviors. I have to model it. I have to encourage them. I have to measure it, hold them accountable for it. And, you know, that that's how we move together. Part of it is growing together in Christ. Dr. Barna, that's so good. I, uh, I'm reminded of a, a book I'm reading right now and just finished, in fact, over the weekend is called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters um, by Dr. Meg Meeker. Are you familiar with it at all? I've heard of it. I haven't read that one. Oh my gosh. She's just talking about the decline in kind of the traditional Christian um, nuclear family. And she just talks about that so few people live in a home where it's mom and dad mm -hmm. and they're married and they're living together. And, and then she just talks about the importance of a dad, especially for a daughter, but really for any child. And uh, this stood out to me. She found five things in her medical practice with research that showed that when a dad is present, these five things are almost always absent. But when a dad's absent, these five things are almost always present. And those things are um, eating disorders, 
drugs and alcohol, teen um, sex, and also pregnancy or children born out of wedlock, like all of these mm-hmm. different things. And it's just like, mm-hmm. not even a, a Christian dad and not even a, a perfect dad and, and no dads are perfect, but just, she was just cheering dads on to say, be present. And I think to take it even one step deeper is what you're doing of mm-hmm. providing some of the things that were the bullseye, what's the target. And it is a biblical worldview. It's to think and become like Jesus. And then it's also like, recognizing that we're the spiritual champion for our children's development and then to raise them to be spiritual Mm -hmm. champions of their own. And um, those activities, I mean, they speak to me because I just think that discipleship does happen in the home. It's not by accident and yet it's vital and it's really, really important. Yeah, that's so good. Well, I was just even thinking like, how do we as parents, like even balance, I have it written down here, just the, the intensity of like, we live in a, we want a merry heart, a merry heart, but we live in a Martha world, even as Christians, even as pastors, even as leaders, like we're around a lot of people who are doing ministry. They're trying to raise their kids and their families. And some of the stories that you hear are heartbreaking. Like my mom or dad, like they don't have time for me. Um, or you see sometimes when parents are living the lifestyle of preaching the gospel and leading, they just give their kids a phone and you hear, just, just watch this for the next half an hour. And even some of the research that we've read and studied of just like the engagement that young adults, not even young adults, children, I guess, more or less have on social media, every one hour they are on a social media device of any sort, their ability to socially interact goes down 10%. And when you start looking at sometimes if you're consuming eight plus hours of content, no matter what age they are under the age of 18, per day, how 80% of their social interactions are decreased, like their ability to even engage, that's eye contact, that's body language, that's words, that's explaining things, that's just engaging just at large. So how do we as parents, leaders, pastors, not even manage that tension, but how do we even discover what that tension is in our, in our household, in our ministry and in our parenting and get on the same page with our spouse? Obviously, if if we have a spouse as a listener, um, how do we do that with the combating of social media, everything you just kind of talked about with social media, when it comes to children's movies, like how do we combat that and not form legalism in our home to when they do leave the house, they swing in the other direction and they just run crazy till they figure it out again. Like how or what insight do you have or what have you found helpful or I don't know, insightful? Can you speak into that large question? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's good. You know, part of it that we found in the research and we did seven new research projects for this book because there's so much to try to understand The culture is so complex now, moving so quickly. It's so different than even, you know, what what you and I were were raised in. So, yeah, we've got to be apprised of these things. And and yet what we find is, but it goes back to basics. You know, I mean, when, when God put core principles of family and parenting into the scriptures, it really hasn't changed. The context has changed but the core principles are the same. And one of those critical ones is recognize that when you become a parent, that's going to be a period of sacrifice for you. Now, in America, the the sacrifice is a dirty word. Most parents don't want to sacrifice anything. 
It's like, yeah, I'm going to have it all. I'm going to have what I want. I'll take care of my kids, but not by giving them all of my attention and time and resources. No, 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 no. That's for me. And so we've got to recognize, no, this this is a moment in your life, uh, an era, an epic where you're going to have to say, okay, a lot of the things that I like doing now, maybe concerts I like to go to, maybe movies I'd like to see, books I'd like to read, people I'd like to hang out with, places I'd like to visit, stuff I'd like to buy, whatever it is, this may not be that time for you. So get over it. You know, I mean, that that's just the way it is. You chose to have children and they're a gift from God. He loves them dearly. He's going to hold you accountable for how you manage their lives, what you do to build into them. So take this period seriously. Secondly, it's therefore not only about recognizing this is a time of sacrifice, but a time of sacrifice for what? To build a deep spiritual relationship with your children, that you not only model it for them, but you experience that with them. As you're growing, they need to be growing alongside you. One of the things that I found with the parents who are most effective at raising their children as disciples is that it's a joint adventure that they're on, that I'm growing in my understanding of the scriptures, in my relationship with Jesus, in my commitment to holiness, all of these things. But I'm bringing my children along with me as I'm growing in those areas. And therefore, we can also have this sense of mutual accountability where I can tell my children, no, 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 that's not what we're trying to do or to be or how we want to act or think. And they can do the same with me where they can ask their questions. But wait a minute, Dad, I thought you said that we can't do, you know, yes, perfect. Thank you. I need that kind of accountability. That's what the family of God is. And so those are those are critical things. And that only happens if you develop an ongoing sense of trust with your children. Most parents right now don't have the trust of their kids. And, and so to win that back is a difficult process, but a worthwhile process when you've got to invest a lot of time in. So, you know, when you look at your schedule, look at where you're spending your time. If you're not spending it during these, particularly during these formative years between the ages of one or two and the age of 13, if you're not spending most of your time, your free time when you're not working or sleeping with your family, you may want to rethink your schedule. That's so good. It's, Amen. Amen. Yeah. And I love it. Dr. Barna, when, when we're with young couples or when, when we're talking to parents, people our age or maybe a little older, a little younger, and when I'm with mentors, one of the key things that almost invariably in our season of life comes up is the topic of schooling. And for us, we're up against this decision. And a lot of the, the young parents mm -hmm. that we're in life with, in community at church, or just thinking about praying about putting a lot of thought and time and energy and attention and effort into is do we uh, send our kids to public school? Is private Christian school the best choice? Is homeschool the best choice? And every kid is going to be different, every family, every community, because look, education is really on a, a communal level of what city and, and context and 
all of those things, but do you have any research or insight or just um, advice for the, for the young parent listening? Who's like, you know, uh, the, the school bus is coming. It's only a couple <laughs> bus stops away. Which bus should, which bus should we be on? Yeah. I mean, what the research has shown us is that the, the individuals who have the highest probability of actually becoming disciples of Jesus are those who are homeschooled. And that's because typically their parents made an intentional decision to make sure that their children are getting a particular kind of education, one that incorporates biblical truth and a different group of individuals, uh, peers, that their children are going to hang out with. And that typically has worked out uh, best. The, the second best typically are certain Christian schools. And here I'm, I'm trying to be a little careful, hedging the bet a bit, because not all Christian schools are alike. And so what we found is that actually most Christian schools are no better than public schools. But there is a, a minority of Christian schools that really are locked into biblical perspectives and teaching. And if you're going to send your children to a Christian school, you've got to know enough about it to know that the, your children are going to have a, a real biblical education. And that means that they're going to have more than just a chapel and a prayer at the beginning of a class and, you know, maybe a, a, a Bible class, you know, once a, once a semester, uh, which is common in a lot of Christian schools. That's all the Christianity they get. So be very cautious about that. We actually found that uh, on average, public schools are better than those non-biblical, quote-unquote, Christian schools in terms wow. of how children turn out. So uh, it's just like choosing a church. When you go to choose a church just because the sign says Christian and they got a pastor who opens a Bible and they got a lot of nice people, doesn't mean that it's a place where you're going to grow in Christ. you got to look much deeper than that, and it's the same with schools. That's so good. We've just been praying about that. And we know a Seriously. lot of other families are praying about that because a lot of our COVID friends, COVID babies, like they were like a baby boom in our in our circle of, of friends and individuals we do life with. So Josiah, that's a great question. I think I ask it for us selfishly before we press record. I was like, Dr. Barnum, I'm thrilled about your newest <laughs> book. And selfishly, we get to ask you the questions that we're up against and that we're mm -hmm. asking. And, um, and, and I think for the listener, whether you're a parent and whether you're a pastor, whether you're maybe not a parent, you're a young adult, but you think you might be a parent someday. These are some of the things I would say to pay attention to, to start right. thinking about now, to start researching, to start praying about, because um, I just think that discipleship is massive and education is a form of discipleship and how we're spending, gosh, whether you talked Micah, about eight hours of screen time on average a day for a lot of teenagers, or maybe eight hours in school many days throughout the week. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that it's just, those are, those are big chunks of time and big decisions. Yep. And uh, it ties into 
worldview and having a biblical worldview. And when I, when I find out that about 10% of so-called Christians are resilient disciples, when I find out that about 4% of Gen Z has a biblical worldview, I mean, this is um, crisis level attention. This should be all hands on deck. <laughs> and the thing that I'm most encouraged by from your latest work, Dr. Barna, is that it's it's not only theoretical, there's some handles on it. Yeah, we can as good. parents be proactive. And that would be my encouragement is, is let's be proactive. Let's the let's, practical application too. It's not yes. just theoretically try yep. this and maybe it'll work out. Like yep. I was so surprised when you had said, if we apply these seven things right here, 83% chance, the moment you don't do all of these, it goes down to two. I'm like, dang, that is a big drop. The ship is going down, people. <laughs> it's a blowout. I mean, it's very rare that I find that kind of a correlation. But I mean, I've been praying for years, Lord, yes. give me something to tell these people. And uh, I don't know, it's like 1 or 2 a.m. one morning, I'm playing with the data. And it's like, whoa, check this out. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that we know that because I think it is an easy entry point and a great starting place, a wonderful foundation to build on. Yes, I love it. It's incredible. I think my last question on the content of this conversation before we do five rapid fire questions, the close uh, thing. Um, I, I think I'd, I'd be so curious. How do you believe that we measure spiritual growth or development, maturity along those lines? Because mm. certainly it's more of a qualitative analysis at times, but but maybe not. What what are you thinking when it comes to how do we measure our own or that of our children or the faith of the next generation? How do we go about evaluating and measuring the the progress of spiritual growth and development? Yeah, it's a great question, one that I wish more people would ask. And I included a chapter in the book about that very thing, the, the assessment of how a child's disciple journey is coming. And what I suggest is that really the, the same way that you build a disciple is the same way you measure a disciple, through relationship. And, and when you have that relationship where you're investing a lot of time in that bond and in, in those joint experiences, you have the opportunity to ask questions, you have the opportunity to observe. And it's through those two things that you can get a sense of, is my child growing as a disciple of Jesus? But what is it that you want to observe and you know measure? Well, for me, it's something that I talked about earlier in the book where we have to know what a disciple is. And there were six points in scripture where Jesus said, this is what a disciple is. You know, so in John 8, he said, uh, you know, you'll be my disciple if you obey my teaching. Yep. John 13, he said, you'll be my disciple if you love other disciples deeply. John 15, you know, you'll be my disciple if you continually produce a lot of spiritual fruit, i.e. go make other disciples. That's what disciples do. Uh, in Luke 14, uh, three times, he says, you cannot be my disciple unless, and the first thing he said is, unless you love God so much, so deeply, so profoundly, so extensively, that it seems like you hate everything else in comparison. That's how much you love God. And then just after that, he said, and you cannot be my disciple unless you, uh, you know, pick up your own cross and carry it, follow me which in Roman society meant you submit to the appropriate authority. Who's the appropriate authority? God himself. 
you know, and then finally handed up that chapter by saying, and you will not be my disciple unless essentially you surrender everything to follow me. In other words, it's all about my agenda, not your agenda. And so when you're evaluating how your child is doing or how you're doing, I mean, those are the things you've got to go back to, to figure out, is that the nature of who I am? Is that what I'm working towards? Is that what I'm modeling and coaching my child toward becoming? And is that the kind of thing that I'm evaluating as I listen to what they say and ask them questions about what they mean, as I watch what they do with their friends or on the ball team or whatever, those are the critical things that that we've got to be evaluating. Oh, man, I think that's so good. And just like evaluating, do we have the tenacious zeal that the disciples had or like the three questions that they were asked? Like when you go back and you reference exactly what you just did, it's like, where am I? choosing to fall short because of my lack of discipline, my lack of time management, my lack of taking the word of God seriously. Because I think one thing that I really always lean into, um, just as a leader, I'm like, God, like, oh, I have so much to learn. Like I know nothing in comparison to what you want to show me through the word. And because it is active and it's living and it's so prevalent in this day and age and forever, it's just an amazing opportunity to say, okay, Lord, am I doing all I can do? And where do you want to call me out? Like truly search my heart. And when we, one thing I pray for is like a tenacious spirit and a tenacious zeal for God. And I know those are powerful words, but I'm like, no, like those, I want gritty girls. I want girls that can fight like that. Like I want them to be able to wrestle through the tensions of the world and of the word and come to a conclusion that this is ultimate truth. This is how I make this decision. This is how I filter through the lens of X, Y, and Z. And I think that that's just one prayer that we have. I'm like, God, because Josiah's like, if we ever have kids, like, what do you, what do you want to to teach them? I'm like, well, aside from God and the word and all of that kind of stuff, I'm like, I want to have gritty kids. Like I want kids that know how to get in the game and be gritty. I want them to be problem solvers because I think we come a lot across a lot of young adults who don't know how to solve a problem. It's can be so simple. And like, that's a problem to be solved. So, and and then also the third thing he asked, or I answered him, I was like, I want our kids to be able to critically think. I want them to be able to critically think. I want them to wrestle through the hard things, but I want them to have this, this zealous, tenacious spirit when it comes to the Lord. And I guess just taking the inventory of those three passages that you just highlighted, I'm like, dang, I think I need to do personal reflection, even after this conversation of where am I choosing to fall short, Right. Because so many times we choose to, and we don't realize that we're slowly drifting. But um, instead of drifting, let's lean into this next part, because we have the five and five. This is five questions, Dr. Barna, that we can just hopefully unpack within the next five to six minutes. And we know that our audience loves this part. So question number one is, um, what has God been teaching you lately? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, maybe the, the summary comment about it is that I need to keep my eyes focused on finishing well, you know, I mean, look at me, how, how much longer is he going to give me? Right. So uh, I need to, to figure what are the, the, the final things that I want to make sure that God's able to do through me wow. that he put me here to accomplish that maybe I've been kind of a slacker on, or I haven't focused enough on, or I haven't put enough energy into whatever it is. 
really it's it, for me, it's about at this point about finishing well. So that that's partly by the way, why this book came out when it did is if, if he takes me home now and that's the last book I ever put out, I'm thrilled because for me, it's like a, a legacy book, you know, raising spiritual champions. Yeah. I can live with that. That's so good. Uh, resonates with us and the life work of ministering to young adults and marriage and parenting and family. This is all part of God's design and we're grafted into his family. And mm -hmm. um, this is the controversial question today is when did you become a Yankees fan? <laughs> well, you have to understand I was born in New York City. So uh, it was Yankees or Mets. The Mets at that time were, were horrific. And uh, the Yankees had Mickey Mantle. So I, I have no choice. I love Mickey Mantle. I just thought he was a, a great ball player. I had no idea about what a mess his life was. Although toward the end of his life, he accepted Jesus as a savior. So I, you know, my, my heart was worn by that. And, uh, but yeah, it was in the, uh, in the 1960s. That's incredible. Um, so, so fun. That's a great answer. There's a story behind it. I like that. It's good. I'm from North Dakota. So I said to pick a team, you know, you don't have any of that. So he's going to be oh, like, yeah. oh, well, because uh, we don't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's too funny. Okay, but if if there was a trip that was all expenses paid, where would you go and what would you do? Like, what are some things you have on a bucket list? You're like, oh, I ha I want to do that. I have never been to Japan. I've been to 36 countries, uh, but I've never been to Japan. And I would love to go there. It's such a unique and different culture. I don't really understand their faith uh, inclinations and practices. And uh, I think going there and being able to check that out firsthand would be really interesting. And, and being able to understand how better to relate to Japanese people with the gospel, mm -hmm. which apparently we're doing a miserable job of because there are so few Christians in wow. Japan and so few Japanese people who come to America who become Christians. So yeah, that that to me would be a, a really interesting one. Great answer. Yeah, no doubt. How about this? I know you're a curious person. If you could ask Micah and I any question, what would you want to ask us today? Uh, what do you think is the toughest thing about ministering to people in your own generation? Ooh. Think, a couple. Go ahead. Yeah, I think mine, I'll keep it short, but I think that, um, man, there's been at times um, some, some, a common theme I see is people who've been hurt by a pastor or they've been let down. And some of it would be maybe the, the fall of prominent Christian leaders. Um, that certainly would be a broad stroke as to maybe why mm -hmm. people don't trust Christianity or the church. Um, but I think even that, you know, there's, there's ways that you can process that as far as I believed in illusion that their faith was sincere and we don't follow leaders. We followed Christ, mm -hmm. but, but I think more specifically when you've been in a community and you've experienced pain or hurt that I, I think that be, it can become just such a, a roadblock, a hindrance for the gospel in our generation that I think that's feels like a couple areas where we're swimming up 
against uh, against the current. Oh man, I think of the th- three C's of why we do what we do is actually the messiness of everything, and it's one Christ. How can we point them to Christ? Um, through any of the church hurt and stuff, but point them to Christ, point them to the importance of community, because the number one question that we see people coming across and asking us is, Micah, how do you make friends? How do you make friends? I'm like, you're 35 years old and you don't know how to make a friend yet. Like, And the older you get, it seems like the harder it becomes sure. or less sincere along the way of the depth that you're able to go with people around you versus like early 20s, your college roommates. Like Those are still some of my best friends that I made in my early 20s. And now I look back and I'm like, we've almost been friends for 15, 20 years. I'm like, that's a scary number. Um, so I think the church, I think community, uh, the third one's the church, pointing them to a church that is gospel centered, Jesus teaching and preaching. And it doesn't matter what order that's in because they're all asking those questions without asking. We need church. We need Christ. We need community. Um, and it's hard to convince somebody that they need all three of those things, but when they discover it along the way, it just becomes organic. And they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe why I haven't been doing this. And I think why we do what we do and the challenge is not convincing people, but seeing their fear decreased and their, or seeing their fear decreased and seeing their in their curiosity increased. So if we can see their de- decrease of that fear, increase of that curiosity. When we point them to a church or a service that we can say, come with us yep. um, or sit with us, you won't be alone. That decreases their fear and increases their curiosity of a church service or a mission trip or whatever that is. So I think those are three things we're up against, but the three things we always point people to, and all we have to do is just create opportunities for individuals. So that's all. We got one minute left, but if we could ask you one last question in 60 seconds, if you could encourage our audience with anything today, what do you want to encourage them with? Oh, that, that you hold the future in your hands. You know, the fact that your children are going to be shaped Wow. by somebody wow it should be you and so you have the opportunity you have the calling you have the resources maybe what you don't have is the will but i would encourage you to develop the will to actually be the one who has the joy of knowing that you led your children mm-hmm. not only to know jesus as their Lord and Savior, but then to live their life for him and his purposes. And and when you die, that you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because that's what God is going to hold you accountable for. What did you do with those children that I entrusted to you? Mm -hmm. And so go for it. This is a a tremendous moment in history to do that. You can do it. So good. Yes, you can. You're listening to the Young Adults Today podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Young Adults Podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to subscribe. We've reviewed and shared this with some